This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Hi, I'm Katherine Klein. I'm the Vice Dean for Social Impact at Wharton. I'm a professor in the management department, and I'm delighted today to be talking with Kyle Zimmer, the president, CEO, and co-founder of First Book. Kyle, great to see you. I'm delighted to be here. Great to have you with us. Um, so First Book, I'll just give the accolades. Uh, I think of First Book as really one of the most impressive Nonprofit social enterprises. I know you've been at it a long time and are passionate about continuous improvement. So I'm excited to talk with you and share this story with our audience. How do you describe First Book? What is First Book? Well, we are a nonprofit social enterprise, and we're at the highest level, what we're dedicated to is equal education. But the way we do that is we focus on fixing the lack of resources, physical resources, in any space serving children in need, zero to 18 years of age. So it's we provide books, we provide uh, computers, we provide winter coats when they're needed, uh, anything that is a barrier between kids and an equal shot. Got it. And first, uh, books has been was the initial starting point, right? Correct. And is yep. that the major focus of your work, or what's the balance when you talk about these other resources? Books are always the heart of First Book. And in fact, we were delighted this last year to hit 160 million books uh, over the lifetime of the organization that, distributed. that we have distributed. And uh, right now we're running at a clip of about, I think last year we did about 18 or 19 million books through our system in a single year, and it's growing 20% a year. And which are just fabulous numbers. Who are these books going to? They basically go into the hands of anyone serving children in need. It can be the most informal teen drop-in center. It can be a Head Start program. It can be a WIC clinic, a church basement, a barber shop where they're doing outreach, trying to get neighborhood kids reading, or a Title I or Title I eligible classroom. So it's a gigantic range. Yeah. And we'll talk about how you get uh, these books into into the hands of all these, these people and organizations. Uh, the name of first book sort of suggests that this is, might be the first book in, in kids' lives or the first books in their homes. Why first book? Well, you know, I fell in love with a poem by Rita Dove that's called First Book, and that's where the name came from. And it's a poem about the, it's. it doesn't have anything to do necessarily with it being the first book when you're an infant. It has to do with being the first book that really grabs you oh, and turns you into a reader. Oh, that's great. All right. So you founded First Book, what, 25 years ago? I did this year, you 25 did. years. And you made the jump from a career as a as an attorney, to I'm going to start this nonprofit social enterprise <laughs> and transform the world through books. And I'm, you know, what I've seen in my role is uh, in the social impact world is a lot of people who have passion and pursue this larger sense of purpose, but plenty of people who have a larger sense of purpose but don't take the plunge. So, how and why were you able to take the plunge? You know, I think that. Um, I took the plunge for two reasons. One is 
I, I was raised to focus on education. I was always raised by people who believed deeply mm -hmm. that education was the road to equality. And uh, to this day, I believe that it really is the next wave of the civil rights movement. Um, I, and I think that that has always been at the core of who I am. Uh, and so when I started, I actually was practicing and I went over to, in the evenings, to uh, a soup kitchen and, you know, just hung out with kids from the neighborhood. It was in the late 80s, early 90s, and uh, it was a tough period for Washington. Uh, a period of the height of the crack epidemic, and so very violent. And these kids were doing everything right, mm -hmm. uh, coming in from a tough neighborhood looking for adult intervention. And I realized that even though I wasn't a teacher, that those hours could be a lot more productive if I just had books and I could pull a kid onto my lap and start reading. And the lack of books in that setting sort of set me on a trail of exploration. I started looking at schools in the neighborhood, what resources they had available, reading studies about it. And one thing led to another. And I, like probably every social entrepreneur you know, in the world, I have that uh, split where my head is fundamentally private sector and mm -hmm. my heart is social sector. And so I, uh, you know, began to uh, put together a business plan and to understand the intricacies of the publishing industry and to start imagining how you develop an actual business plan that would fix the chasm. Yeah. So that's just what I want to talk about. And I love how you put this with the, the, the heart in the social <laughs> sector and the head in the private sector. Uh, another way people talk about organizations like yours is as hybrid organizations. Yep. They can be for-profit, they can be non-profit, but there's a strong social mission and a revenue, gen a revenue generating model as well. Mm -hmm. um, so how does that work in your case? At this moment, we have two big jet engines. Mm -hmm. One is called the First Book National Book Bank. And what that does is it accepts, fundamentally it's focused on books, but mm -hmm. there are other products as well. It accepts large-scale contributions from really almost every major publisher in the U.S. and Canada. And we take that inventory in and we make it available through an online system to our expansive network of classrooms and programs mm -hmm. who have signed up with us mm -hmm. and who are eligible to receive resources. So that, that one line is, is essentially a donor model where, folks are don where companies are donating books and right. you're distributing them. And while that sounds more traditional it does. in its design, yeah. the, the people who receive the books, mm -hmm. the books remain free, but they pay a shipping and handling fee. Uh -huh. On average, it's about 55, 60 cents per book. But what that fee allows us to do is not only pay shipping mm -hmm. and sort of the hard out-of-pocket cost, yeah. but it allows us also to pay 100% of the costs related to running the National Book Bank. Uh, and so what that means mm -hmm. is that that is completely revenue neutral for mm -hmm. the organization, and that places 14 million books a year, something like that. Uh, so it's a powerful engine. Right. Right. And then the second, the second engine. And the second engine is called the First Book Marketplace. And about 10 or 11 years ago, what we realized is that though we love the book bank, uh, it's wildly mm -hmm. efficient. It, uh, it places 
enormous quantities right. of books and resources out there, but what it doesn't do is fix the problem for publishing. Publishing is a consignment industry, and mm -hmm. what that means is that they know that when they hit the print button every year on whatever titles they select, that 25 or 30 percent of that inventory is coming back to them. Right. And that means that they elevate the price at retail to reflect that. So we have a market now where a premium picture book for kids in the U.S. runs uh, just a, a hair over $18. Right. So you have an entire publishing industry that really has a restricted market mm -hmm. to about the top 5% of the U.S socioeconomic wow. ladder. Well, that's not good for the industry. No yeah. one wants to have that kind of constriction. So we went to them and we said, we are going to crack open the bottom of the market mm -hmm. for you. Mm -hmm. We will aggregate the market. We will take care of talking to them so there'll be no advertising right. costs. And we will buy for the first time ever on a non-returnable basis, which took the consignment risk off the table as well. So we now offer about, I think it's 6,500 titles. Uh, you know, it changes, mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. goes up and down, but about 6,500 titles. And the average price of a picture book through us is 285. Amazing. And it includes shipping. Right. And so we and really. These are often, these might be paperback books, different, slightly correct. different version. I mean, it's the same picture, same story, same everything. Right. But maybe not hardback. Maybe not hardback. Sometimes right. they are hardback, mm -hmm. and the cost is a little higher on mm -hmm. those. But you're right. We change format uh, sometimes to, to keep the cost so it's accessible. Yeah. But it also works for the publishers. You know, it's a brand new market and they're still making money on those sales. And, and how are you, these groups that you are selling these books to, how are they paying, whether it's a community center or a school system? You said the local barbershop. You know, it depends on the program. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's Title I funds, mm -hmm. you know, which are governmental funds. Uh, a lot of times what we know is about more than 90 percent of teachers in the United States take money out of their own pocket right. uh, to pay for resources in their classroom. And uh, if you're a teacher at a Title I school, the needs are so high that First Book believes that none of those people should be first of all, paying for it themselves, but secondly, paying $18 yeah. a book, right? And so we're able to make those dollars that they do bring to the table, whether they're out of their own mm -hmm. pocket, whether they're school funds, sometimes it's local foundations or affluent folks who come to the table and, and recognize the need. It's a huge range. And yeah. we just want to, all we care about is making sure that every dollar that comes in pushes the maximum number of resources out the door. Right. So with your model, it sounds like there's not really, you're not experiencing a tension between the revenue generating aspects of the model and the, the social impact. That, you know, the more books you are having, that are getting donated, the more books that you're selling, the That's more right. books are contracting, the greater your, your impact. That's not always the case. And, and I wonder if you have, you know, if there are things that you've learned along the way, if you were giving advice to others who are looking for this, a successful hybrid model mm -hmm. where you get that win-win, you know, do you have advice? Do you have insights about how you find that? I, I do think that we're particularly fortunate mm -hmm. to have our our model is directly on point with our mission. Mm -hmm. And uh, it means that there really is no distraction between the two. Right. Um, I think that 
if I were advising somebody to design one, what I would suggest is a couple of things. One is I'm a big believer in writing a business plan. I, it, it may sound old fashioned, mm -hmm. it may sound boring as hell, I, but what you need to do is you need to sit in front of your computer and you need to make sure that you can clearly articulate exactly what you intend to do, exactly what the risks are, and you need to do it fearlessly and mm -hmm. ask yourself every tough question. Also, I think uh, young people, especially who are trying to start social enterprises, I think they need to step out and ask for help, you know? Mm -hmm. No, I, I talk to a lot of classes and I yeah. think what they say, a lot of young people, even people who are very highly educated, they have MBAs from right. great programs like Wharton, um, and they're still worried that they don't know enough. Mm -hmm. They don't know enough about logistics right. or whatever the topic is. And I, I think that the best minds recognize that team leadership is a way to go mm -hmm. and that what you really need to do, you're never going to know enough. Right. And even if you do when you start it, within six months you'll be facing challenges that you really couldn't even foresee. Uh, and so you need to routinely get yourself in the mode of reaching out, asking for help, asking people who you know will give you great advice, yeah. but who will also ask you the tough questions so that you don't run the risk of falling so in love with your design that you lose track of your business model. Right. And right. so I think there are lots of wonderful models where they don't have the alignment, mm -hmm. where they're running a restaurant to fund you know, a, a homeless program and many, many fantastic models. Uh, but I do think the centerpiece of that is refined thinking, mm -hmm. forcing business practices, forcing yourself to answer the tough questions. Got it. So uh, let's, let's dig a little bit more into this, the, some of the leadership aspects which you've just alluded to. How is it, so many, many organizational leaders will struggle uh, in, you know, from their position as CEO and founder to get real information, to have somebody, you know, speak up to you and, and uh, give you content and say, no, that's not a good idea. Uh -huh. Or here's my great idea and bring it forward to you. Right. And I know this is something you've thought a lot about. So how do you get that bottom-up information? I think we have really, as you say, we've really worked hard on this at First Book, and it's it's multi-layered. One is we believe deeply in team leadership, mm -hmm. and so there's no one head of the organization. Mm -hmm. It's a team of four people. Mm -hmm. We have enormous faith in each other, and that sets a tone because the rest of the organization, will they watch how we interact, yeah. and they see that, you know, Jane, the CFO, or Chandler, Dan, they ask me very difficult questions, or I may come up with a what I believe is a completely genius idea, and they will shoot it down pretty, pretty aggressively with great, you know, caring and, mm -hmm. and all, but, but in great humor, but, but the interaction is very clear. And so it emboldens people uh, and teaches them that it's okay to question. So that's that's one thing. I think a second thing is we really do focus on how we interact at meetings mm -hmm. uh, with our team. And so, for example, I will say, I'll present an idea, and I will say to a junior person, tell me three things that you love about my idea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they'll stand up and come up with right. three things. And then I'll say, okay, now... 
tell me three things that you hate about my idea. And usually it's so playful that it's you've you've lowered the threshold, mm-hmm. you've lowered the barrier, uh, and they feel as though they can step forward. And you know, by the way, I think that's critical not just with our internal interactions, but I also think it's critical for our relationships with corporations. Mm. Uh, we often have almost identical conversations with the companies that yeah. support us because it's hard sometimes for them mm-hmm. to feel like they can be critical of, uh, of their nonprofit partners. And that's sometimes the most important thing they can do for us. Yeah. So, uh, and as the social impact space has evolved, as social enterprise models uh, have evolved, there's a big focus on data, mm-hmm. as, as you know. Uh, how are you using data, whether to, you know, to guide your strategy uh, and your projects or to assess your impact? We, yeah, we use data every single day uh, at Facebook, and, and we use it in a lot of different ways. So from an impact perspective, we survey our recipient groups routinely. In fact, we just closed a survey, a pretty large-scale survey recently, and, and got some wonderful responses. Uh, we found that I, I think 88% told us that the books that we provided helped them close the learning gap, the achievement gap. Uh, 87% said that they noticed an increase in interest in reading from the children they served as a result of having new books and resources. And my favorite number out of the whole thing is 79% of the teachers we serve uh, came back to us and said that the first book resources felt like it gave them the ability to be the best educators they could be, which is fabulous because this is a group of people who are working on the front lines in very tif- mm-hmm. difficult mm-hmm. situations. But we also look at other kinds of data. We, uh, at, we do focus groups routinely with uh, the people we serve. We get all kinds of feedback from them about what they need, mm-hmm. what categories of products they need, but also what keeps them up at night? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are they worried about in the lives of their kids? Right. And, and we get tremendous input from that. Um, I think also we look at the macro level through data, and we are monitoring constantly how big a buyer are we mm-hmm. in the publishing industry. Mm-hmm. If we're really about trying to invert the market for publishers, how close are we to doing that? I'm happy to report we're one of the largest specialty buyers of most of the major publishers in the U.S. now, which is terrific. But we do we learn that we watch those numbers so that we know what our impact at the macro level right. is as well. Right, and uh, that that makes me you've uh, that makes me think of the times when you've talked about you to me about your impact in. On publishing, mm-hmm. and we haven't talked about that. So, is first book is first book changing the publishing market? What gets published and for whom? I think we are in small ways right now, and we're taking bigger and bigger steps mm-hmm. in that. I, I believe that a couple of things have happened. I think that we have opened the eyes of traditional publishers uh, to the fact that there's another market mm-hmm. out there that they haven't served for. A couple of hundred years, right? And uh, I, I believe that in that they have been more 
deliberate in the choices they've made about the the cultural identities of authors they mm-hmm. back because they know that first book will be there as an open market to them. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, everybody, almost everybody knows um, um, Goodnight Moon. Sure. And um, I think you, I've read that to my own kids a thousand times. And I, uh, there was an English version and there was a Spanish version. And our network responded to us and said, don't make us buy both. We really need a bilingual edition. Uh-huh. And we learned that there wasn't one. And so we went to the publisher and said, how about if we buy 30,000 copies and, of course, that was welcome news to the publisher because it's non-returnable. It's all great. And uh, when we did that, they, that, was, and that had never been done before mm-hmm. because when you're selling it to a retail market uh, at the high end of the market, if they need both, they just buy both copies. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, I think we've been through 115,000 copies of that book now. And now it's available at retail. So we, it, but it wasn't before we began that. Right. Uh, our work for Stories for All, uh, which is a program, a first book that focuses on uh, cultural diversity, and um, uh, it, you know, which is a dramatic need in children's literature in the U.S. especially. And uh, we have really held hands with publishers, and we've said we will buy the first 10,000 copies of uh, books that we hand-select before they are ever chosen by the publisher. So what that enables the publisher to do is to take a gamble Mm -hmm. on an author that they might not be as confident about the retail market for because they know that the first 10,000 are out the door. Great. Yeah. So so final question. We've talked about a lot of the successes for first book. I know that you are Mm -hmm. always looking forward and contemplating new plans, new opportunities, new challenges. So what are you thinking about for the future? (laughs) Maybe a puzzle that you haven't quite cracked or, you know, a new venture? This is my favorite part of my job. I, uh, we have several big plans underway. One is recognizing that not only are we focused on publishing, but we're focused on what are the resource needs that are barriers to, for these kids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've already stepped out, as I said, in winter coats and hygiene kits for homeless children uh, and many other areas. And what we're realizing more and more is that not only is the pub- has the publishing industry been designed really to only serve the upper veneer, mm-hmm. but the retail industry fundamentally is really only design. And, and it's not anybody's fault. Mm-hmm. They, are, they are victims of their own market design. They're victims of their own business strategy. Mm-hmm. And, and so now we have a gigantic and growing number of families who are at the very bottom of the poverty ladder. And these are people who can't afford diapers. Wow. They can't afford books. They can't afford school supplies. They can't afford the very basic items that allow you to raise a child in a healthy environment. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking at that and we're saying, what's our role? What's yeah. our role in that? And we have some strategies underway for that. I will just say, mention, secondly, we are also working on uh, uh, developing a research arm. Once, you know, we have 300,000 members of our network and they have 
big opinions and they share them with us wonderfully, very openly. And so with that, we realize we have a unique opportunity to really harness the voice of people who Mm -hmm. are serving kids in need. And so what can we do with that? So we're beginning something called First Book Insights uh, that we're looking at this next year launching. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Great talking with you. Great talking with you. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.